Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and there's nobody more interesting than who I'm pleased to have on with me this week, uh, Peachy Keenan, who is an anonymous warrior. And what I'm going to call her is the converted Gen X suburban wine mom turned base domestic queen. How do you like, how do you, how's that for a title? Um, she's a contributing editor at the American Mind. She's the author of the forthcoming manifesto Domestic Extremist out in June. Uh, she's also one of my all time favorite writers. She's also, as I just mentioned, anonymous. So for those of you who watch the YouTube videos, that's why this one is, well, not a YouTube video. Um, <laughs> but through the magic of the microphone, I'm, I'm pleased to say welcome, Peachy Keenan, to High Noon. Hello, Inez. Thank you so much. I love your nickname for me. <laughs> you can put that on your on your book as the your author. It'll, are you kidding? It'll be on my tombstone. <laughs> so how how did you get um from a previously described uh, sort of normie positions um to being where you are today which is a, with a dedicated um audience reading audience and and twitter audience uh for your domestic extremism uh yes my my journey to domestic extremism it's uh you know i was i just say i wasn't born like this i was definitely made um the journey is long and winding so you know, I was groomed to be a very like, uh, you know, secular, basic, uh, mainstream feminist all through private school and my quote unquote elite college education along with all of my peers. And I never imagined that I would one day be, you know, a devout Catholic, uh, <laughs> happily married and a mother to many children. Um, with my shit posting side hustle on Twitter. <laughs> you could never have, you could never have uh, convinced me this is where I would end up. But I think it was a long, you know, a slow process of, you know, being red pilled first politically from being a kind of basic, not a totally apolitical lib. Um, and then finally the feminism fell from my eyes um, right around the time that I met my husband and started kind of making this sort of big giant mental shift from, you know, being a random single person in her twenties to like, Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I do want a family. I do want a marriage. How do I put that together? So that happened um, fortunately for me um, and worked out, but uh, a lot of people it doesn't. So I really do feel like, and I say this in my book, I escaped feminism by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> um, you know, you talk about actually coming to basically Catholicism through politics, right? Um, which is something that, or at least that your it's political true. conversion preceded your religious conversion. There, there's been a bunch of um, sort of consternation around some some of the uh, that exact sort of pathway uh, that's happening here. I'm thinking of the New York Times article that lamented that the hottest club in New York City is the Catholic yeah. Church. Um, yeah. That was the headline, right? There, it seems like a lot of for a lot of folks, they're proceeding. They're essentially, they're rejecting the modern politics and modern feminism and and a lot of these isms that are put in front of us, um, and they're ending up. At, at sort of the the world's largest uh, and oldest, still organized, still functioning um, religious organization. I mean, how 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 did the, were those two things connected, and why did you end up where you are? Yeah, that's so interesting. I that article, the the whole Dime Square um, 
trend and making Catholicism this cool hop and night spot. For me, it was a little different. And I, I think, you know, the first step towards that, I mean, I grew up a very hardcore secular atheist. Both of my parents were totally rejected religion. We had like a Christmas tree, but, you know, uh, our, our only God was Santa and Rudolph was his messenger. Like we were not, you know, never set foot in a church, nothing, um, or any kind of religious ceremony of any kind. Um, and so I think the first step was for me be changing, transforming really from like a militant pro-choice, um, person to someone who realized, oh, that is actually not not my position. Like maybe I'm, could I be pro-life? That was really, abortion was really the issue that kind of tipped me into maybe being open to some kind of religious identity, which, which my entire life, my first 30 years of my life was anathema. I could not, you know, I went on nothing to do with religion. Um, <clears throat> but when I made the switch, the change with the, the biggest leap of all really for me was from pro-choice to pro-life. And after that, it sort of fell into place. Um, you know, I still took me a long time till I actually like had a conversion, like went to did RCIA at the local terrible woke liberal parish, you know, with the openly gay uh, priest who was a lovely man, but you know, he was basically <laughs> Liberace in a cassock, you know, and um, <clears throat> I, per I persevered and um I think that just, you know, once you start down the road of realizing the truth about abortion, at least for me, there was really no escaping my 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 end up as a traditional Roman Catholic. Um, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that seems to characterize our age so strongly and particularly the last couple of years is this collapse in institutional kind of messaging in faith, right? Um, leaving aside sort of the Catholic church as an alternate institution for a moment. Um, you know, here I'm thinking about when you say that you were sort of a, um, a default lib, but like an apolitical one, right? I think what totally. that actually means is that you just passively accept the kind of messages that seem to be swimming in the ether, whether that's coming out of Hollywood as, as an institution or coming out of, you know, successful corporations and corporate culture as an institution, universities as an institution. And, and a lot of people are just sort of passively accept those things. And I feel like the last couple years, I mean, really starting the dam starting to break in, in 2016 with Trump's election, but I think even more so for a lot of folks who might've been a little bit more passively left, the last couple years have just been kind of an avalanche of proof that nothing works the way that we sort of trusted that it would, that the, the medical institutions um, failed us and, and the CDC has failed us and the, um, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the, the military like that we assumed was competent. I mean, they, they made a disaster out of, out of this withdrawal, right. In a pure competent competency basis. I mean, did that factor in at all to your, I mean, it seems like you've had a little longer of a transition on, um, sort of being open to these ideas, but I really only remember your sort of acerbic wit asserting itself um, very strongly in the last two years where you started to really critique some of these institutions. Um, that's a good question. I think that, uh, I think part of it is as a Catholic and as a convert, you, um, 
you become very aware that the institution that you're kind of like pledging your soul to is completely corrupt from the top down. I mean, it is, you know, besides even the, 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 all the child sexual molestation um, that this institution is, wow, what's going on here? And you start pulling back at the rug and what, what have I believed in all these years? And so I think for me, you know, I think, the, the, that sort of for me, I think after, you know, after 9-11, I was, I'm, I, I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I became a, just like a full-throated neocon. Um, and I was like, yes, you know, we have to get Saddam. And then as that all fell apart, you start to, I started to realize, oh, wait a second, what, what was I for here? Like, what, what were they doing? Why did all these soldiers die? And why are they all killing themselves when they come home from the war? But then when, and then when Trump came along. I mean, he really just did us all a favor by pulling up the rug and we could just see what was under there for the first time. And that was just, uh, you know, it was it to, to this day, I'm just blown away by how long I spent believing in, you know, that our, our, our overlords have our best interests at heart. You know, they know what they're doing. They're the experts. My children need every vaccine that my pediatrician recommends. Uh, I would never have questioned any of those things until their failures became suddenly exposed, you know, slowly <laughs> over Trump. And then all at once with the pandemic, it was, it, it was really unbelievable to watch uh, the real time exposure of all these institutions. It's just like a bunch of like, slightly creepy, not that competent, sort of slimy people. Um, everyone from, you know, in every head of every government institution, big pharma, and like what they're doing. I mean, we, we want to talk about big pharma for a second. As they're pushing us into vaccines that may or may not be effective, they did or didn't test that well, may or may not have all these bad side effects, but they're also actively trying to get other shots into little kids that will, you know, shrink their testicles and render them infertile for life. And so all of these things, I mean, what, what, what conclusion can you draw, but that we're on our own fully, uh, no one has our back, not the Pope, not the president, not the head of the Department of Defense, you know, not the people selling us med our medicines. <laughs> they don't have our best interests at heart. And in fact, are, do they have any, you know, what are they trying to do here? Uh, <laughs> And it just became a, a, a funny joke in my house of like, oh, Alex, Alex Jones was right. <laughs> there really is a war on for our minds. Like what? <laughs> and so the more, you know, the more you, uh, you think about it, and obviously if you're very online, which I wasn't until around 2015, um, but then once you kind of go deeper and deeper, it, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no bottom. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on this this more fundamental thing, but I mean, for me, I thought I was already pretty cynical about our institutions, especially post-2015, 2016. Um, but I was kind of a dupe during the, the early part of the pandemic, and I'm still not Same. sure what's right, you know? I'm still not sure whether, um, you know, COVID, for example, has gotten that much milder over time and it was serious in the beginning or like, and I'm still not sure, you know, I, I don't think anybody can be like very certain about the, the sort of relative merits or risks anymore of the vaccine that I took. Right. Um, it, it's, 
it seems like an impossible task to actually be able to support or, or to suss out. I mean, people talk about, quote unquote, doing the research, but I almost feel like we've reverted to a earlier and less sophisticated version of civilization where we don't get to rely on knowledge that is more than one degree of separation from us. Right. Where like, I don't know, I think about uh, sort of earlier iterations of civilization where, I mean, one of our most important things that human beings have been able to do and what's one of the things that's enabled us to, to really conquer the planet in a sense uh, in terms of as a species has been, to be able to retain and teach knowledge and then institutionalize it, right? So that like not everybody has to invent the wheel from scratch. We learn it from previous generations. And then we also learn from people who are concurrently living with us that they can have like one expertise and we can have a different expertise and we can kind of vet all this knowledge through institutions and disseminate it. And I almost feel like <laughs> I, I know I no longer know anything because i have to i have to do everything from scratch and some of these things really do require expertise it requires expertise to be able to read a, a medical study for example it is not something that just a smart person um, with an open mind can really put together like you do need some form of expertise for that but i don't know where to turn for that kind of trusted expertise it seems like like as you just said there's no bottom to it you turn to Twitter, Inez. That's what I do. <laughs> no, I mean, no, Elon Musk says it's going to be the most trusted form of information. I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they politicized, you know, facts. Uh, they started doing that with, with uh, you know, the Iraq War, post 9-11, with Trump. The, politici the politici politicization of, of facts and information, withholding some things that don't, you know, fit their narrative, pushing other, you know... It, it, it is an impossible task to know like, well, wait, okay. So like, do I vaccinate my children for all this stuff? Do I not? What does my doctor's telling me one thing, but I'm not sure. Um, it's been, you know, and look at obviously education in school. What, what are they learn? What are they learning history? Are they learning history filtered through, you know, 10 layers of DEI uh, administrators or whatever. I mean, I am a person who grew up, I have a, 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 a parent who is a doctor. I, I love, I, I am a, a world-class hypochondriac. I believe in medicine. You know, I grew up, my children have all their normal vaccinations. I like <laughs> being healed by medicine. That is how I was, you know, raised. And so it was, um, you know, with the whole, with, with COVID, uh, I mean, that was, yeah, I was like, like you, I was an early overreactor. I was, we even like sprayed our vegetables, you know, in January, February, 2020, we, I had, we had masks, you know, like the crazy ones with the pink, whatever filters on the sides. Like we were like, we're not, we, we're ahead of the curve here. We know what's coming. You guys, you fools don't even know. And obviously that was like a huge overreaction based on, um, you know, the videos that we were seeing early coming out, but yeah, there is nowhere, you know, there is no definitive quote source. And what I what, what what I think one thing we can all agree on is that journal credentialed journalists um, are not are not the source anymore. Like they're not what they were, and that's hard. That's I think that's the hardest, obviously, for the boomers to deal with. That you know the Walter Cronkite voice of sanity and reason. That's you know that's that's vaporized. We don't have that, and so you pick and choose who you 
who you, I don't know who you want to believe, who you do believe, but I, I definitely feel like I, I, I do think the left right now, um, you know, owns like the, owns this because of just the pure obfuscation of, of what, what the effects are of what they've done, like what, what lockdowns do, are, do masks work, you know, puberty blockers are totally reversible and don't cause any problems. I mean, that's all bullshit. So I, I do think that right now, if you had to pick who, who to trust more, I mean, I would say, you know, you can trust me and you. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's, that's the whole problem. I, I don't know. Uh, it's not even just like, there are people I trust not to lie to me, but there are things that require more than not just not lying. Right. Um, but I mean, you pointed out this is potentially generational, right? I, I do think that um, it's, it's going to be much more difficult for people who didn't grow up on the internet um, to sort of balance uh, or, or try to find sources that are trustworthy versus that aren't, aren't sort of institutionally captured. Um, I mean, you've seen the polls on your generation on gen X, right. Um, that is apparently gen X is going to be the most conservative generation voting. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, why, why do you think that is? Why, why is gen X sort of finally stepping up to the plate? Um, <laughs> we made it. Hour. Uh, you guys are, are kind of finally coming out of your, uh, <laughs> I don't care. This is for losers. Stupor. <laughs> That's right. Um, asserting yourselves politically. Why do you think that is? I, I really don't know. I, I, I thought about this a lot, but I do think it's just, you know, the stereotype of Gen X being ultra cynical is, is real. Like we just do not trust authority. I mean, I think that that attitude probably didn't serve me well in college <laughs> or like with my various jobs. Like I just, you know, a lot of eye rolling at what they were asking of me, my professors and my bosses, but it's serving us well now. I think it's serving us very well, just this very deep, deep cynicism about kind of received authority. And that is turning into like a great um, superpower for us that we're not just, you know, TikTok can't really break through to us like the way it can to um, Gen Z. Um, you know, we are we're just sort of like born to question, um, like, who, who do these people think they are? And so <laughs> I think that 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 attitude has to somehow it's a survival attitude right now. And so I think that people, you know, quote, question everything. Well, that that's like a, a liberal thing. But I think it now it's it's like your life depends on questioning it. And, um, you know, and the other thing, the other great the other great superpower that we have is that none of us had, you know, saw a, a smartphone or heard the word internet until we were like in our early or mid twenties. I remember, you know, senior year of college, one of the professors announced kids, I have an email address. You guys can email me. And I remember looking at the email address going like, like what? <laughs> I went back to my apartment and this is senior year of college. And I was staring at my little, like whatever, Apple two E computer. And I remember looking and thinking like, wait a second, like, where does the like email come in? Is it through the like electrical cord? Like I couldn't figure out <laughs> how does the data get into the box? <laughs> I had no information. 
you know, I'm a word cell. Okay, sorry. Um, and so that, but not having access to any of that shit until we were, you know, well into adulthood, really, I mean, we're the only generation that had that, that had that break, that had that early life free from technology and then like suddenly thrown into the, um, to the mosh pit. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, or I mean, there's no way in terms of like kids today on the internet, I mean, that toothpaste is so far out of the tube, you know, limit their screen time. Okay. You know, good luck with that one. Um, <laughs> we, you can try. Um, and obviously we do try that, but yeah, we have Gen X is, um, I've always had faith in Gen X. I've never thought this is just a bunch of losers. They'll never amount to anything. I mean, it always seemed very obvious that um, where the boomers failed, where the, where, where the millennials kind of like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with them. We're the, we're the last sort of voice of sanity is my point. Like totally like total voice of sanity. It's like us and the 16 year olds. I'm not kidding. That's it. Yeah. I, when you said cynical, <laughs> I actually associate cynicism not only with Gen X, but with Gen Z, first of all. I, I really think millennials are Because the, we're raising them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really think of millennials as sort of the quintessential good student, like dorks, you know? Um, I think my generation just imbibed everything direct from sort of the boomer teat um, and all of the sort of self, self-actualizing, change-the-world nonsense that... Mm-hmm you know, sort of bad on the boomer generation that they were still, you know, uh, they were, they were still attached to that kind of philosophy, even as they had and raised children. Right. Um, but I think millennials were essentially the good students. They think of themselves, they think of themselves as rebellious. I think we were the least rebellious generation in sort of pop culture history. We were the, the, you know, bring an apple to your teacher generation, except the teacher was telling us that America was racist and evil. So we just repeated that stuff, you know, um, so yeah, we're I think conforming with each other, we're the earnest generation, not the cynical one. And and you might be right. That might be a, might be a dangerous trait these days. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. The earnest generation. Yeah. It's funny how it seems to skip around like the boomers, like earnestly believed in, you know, the, 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 the justification of like going to spending 20 years in Vietnam. Yay. And then we were like, no, you know, no, please no. And then, uh, then you guys, more earnest generation. And now with the Zoomers, I mean, I don't know. I sometimes I think, oh, the Zoomers are, are they're so based. They're so wow. They're just like us. But then I see statistics that like you know, forty eight percent of Zoomers don't know their gender. <laughs> you know, half of all Zoomers, you know, have seventy five different pronouns. So then I worry, but. The, the zoomers that I know, like I'm talking about the teenagers. I mean, these are, these are good. These are good kids. The one, I guess, you know, the ones I know are not maybe the regular normal um, zoomers. These are like, you know, good Catholic kids. Uh, they're, they're based as hell. And so it gives me a little hope that they, um, they're just like us. <laughs> they're going to make it. I think we're just going to see a huge divergence. It's going to be like bimodal right? The response mm. to this, it's just, things have gotten so crazy that 
there's going to be a certain percentage of, of people who just roll their eyes at it, right? I mean, it's really hard not to roll your eyes at some of this stuff when they're announcing that it's endangering trans people to point out that two sexes exist. You know, th- these are these are eye-rolling, sort of reality-defying things, and it makes sense to me that a sort of teenage rebellion would focus on rolling their eyes at the people who are most stuffy and easily offended. That used to be church ladies, and now it's woke ladies, you know? Um, But I I still think it's really hard. I I think indoctrination works, man. I've had this discussion with with a lot of people because they'd say what what you just did. Oh, you know, I talked to a lot of my my friends or whatever, and they don't seem to buy this at all. Um, I think that's kind of a confirmation bias. I'd like to be wrong, but I think it's confirmation bias. I think if you look at those surveys, I think indoctrination works. And you don't really yes. question the the worldview that's been spoon fed to you since kindergarten, um, even if and that's kind of beyond individual traits, right? Um, you could have a sort of cynical orientation towards any given given sort of piece of this puzzle, but fundamentally, the baseline that you see the world through is going to be one that America is bad, that you know um, that there is no such thing as meritocracy, that you know there is unconscious bias in your soul um, or whatever. And I, I think those things are really, really hard to undo. And they're also really easy to teach because that's the other objection that I get is like, oh, why would you think the schools are any better at teaching wokeism than they are at teaching math? And the answer is it's really easy to teach someone to repeat a slogan. It's really hard to do calculus. I don't know. <laughs> like, right. And there's no virtue attached to learning calculus or being good at calculus, but there is enormous virtue attached to parroting the correct uh, slogans and being on the right side of that issue and being with the cool kids. You know, the cool kids now are not the ones with the, you know, the Mohawks um, smoking cigarettes. They're the, the cool kids are the ones who are ab- in absolute lockstep conformity with the most, you know, wildly uh, left-wing um, teacher at the school. that Those are the cool kids. And um, that's such a, such a funny shift, such a funny shift to me. Um, I wish John Hughes was here. He would make a great, a great movie about, you know, can you imagine the breakfast club now? Like what those kids would look like, <laughs> like who would, who would be in detention now? It'd be the kids who like use the wrong pronoun on the teacher, you know? And the principal would be just like a purple haired, you know, frog self or whatever, like the new pronoun is. It would be it would be a great movie to to remake. But uh, what you just said about it being so easy to indoctrinate people, you know, I think that everyone sort of is in their own cult. If you want to think about it that way, I mean, you can think about religion as a cult, conservatism as a cult, Trumpism as a cult, whatever. Um, One of the reasons I actually wrote this book um, which comes out in June, Domestic Extremists, um, was to try to deprogram people who were like me, who were in the cult of, of liberal feminism. And, and it, it, that, that really is what the book is. It is a manual on deprogramming you or someone you know um, from, you know, people from, from the cult, um, which we, yeah, we, you just breathe it in. Like I was never taught to be a feminist or my, my parents were Reagan conservatives, but I did not follow their path because it wasn't kind of being taught to me. It was sort of like just, you know, we were pretty apolitical. There was no, 
there was a religion, there was no guideposts really of any kind. So you just kind of breathe it in. You just absorb whatever your friends are doing. That's just what, and then you end up, you know, next thing you know, you're, you're like, uh, you know, <laughs> you're like on Tinder or getting whatever 25 abortions or whatever is happening to you without even ever making that conscious decision. That that's where you're going to end up. It just sort of happens to you. And the only way out is to take active steps out because the culture will just suck you into that vortex. If you don't, if you, the, the, the only way to escape it is to just swim really hard the other way you, and you have to, to survive. And that is what, that's really is what the book is about. Like how, how I escaped the, the swirling vortex and how you can also. What, I mean, what would some of those concrete steps be? Um, because I, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's the default and I, I speaking from even a personal perspective, like I, I think it's really difficult to sort of wrench your life out of a particular track um, and, and, you know, do something that is completely different that you never really imagined. That's, that's something that like you can kind of think about or even ideologically commit to and, <clears throat> but, but truly returning is, um, First of all, is it possible? And second of all, I mean, what concrete things would you tell people in order to, to pull themselves out of that current? Yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. There could be no return. Like that's it's over. It's done. We can never go back to the past. Um, some aspects of the past, you know, we don't want to return to. I, I, I like having a washing machine. You know, I enjoy you know earning money. Um, those are all good things that women have. Um, no one wants us, you know, dying of, um, bubonic plague. Um, so the concrete things I talk about in the book basically are, you know, the simple things, but they're not easy things. And the biggest shift, the, the, the biggest shift happens without really taking any actual step or doing something. It just ha has to happen in your mind. You have to make a conscious decision one day, like, okay, I, what's look at my life. I'm not, why aren't I happy? Like, why am I taking three antidepressants? Why do I rely on, you know, why do I need anti-anxiety pills? Why can't I find what I want? Which is, if you look deep in your heart, is probably going to be, you know, true love of some kind, in some kind of relationship. Why aren't I getting that? Why aren't I able to achieve these things? I was told they were not necessary. Marriage was optional. I don't need those things. I need to be free to explore, but I have been doing that for 15 years and I am not happy. And so the first step is really uh, accepting that maybe there's a, a better way. And if you can possibly make that leap, um, whether you're a man or a woman, I mean, I wrote this book for, for everyone who has found themselves in this, in this situation you know, the first thing you need to do is sort of say goodbye to the things that you have been told were fine. Um, starting with, let's say, you know, promiscuous sex, like, you know, random dating, like whoever, whatever, any of any, anyone who comes, comes by, like, sure. You know, having uh, standards in your life for yourself. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not all going to be, um, you know, pitch a perfect game, like, you know, save yourself for marriage. Like, I understand that that is something that's really um, 
you know, reserved for like the very young traditional Catholics and other people in like religious communities. But if you can sort of make the shift to, to that lifestyle, to that mindset of like saving intimacy for someone who loves you and not accepting, especially as a woman, not, not accepting less than that. Like uh, that's something I can, I can never get my head around. Like, why are you why are you willing to do all of this for someone who doesn't care about you, doesn't love you, maybe likes you um, in terms of like dating and you know all the, all the apps? Um, it's it's really sad, and I you know I keep I keep reading these stories that are coming out in like Vox and the New York Times about you know the ten year anniversary of Twitter of Tinder and the stories from the women who literally got on Tinder like when it first launched. And they're like 10 years later, still on Tinder. <laughs> like, what was the point of Tinder? <laughs> was it to like find a boyfriend and fall in love? Or was it simply to absorb like excess, you know, male uh, sexual needs? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what that business model is, but whatever it was, was good because it has all these return customers. They never get off Tinder because you can't ever get off Tinder. And so just starting with thinking about your life in a way that is, yeah, more domestically extreme, as I put it. In other words, you know, being more domestic in general, um, looking to yourself, building a building a home, a life, a family for yourself, versus just looking for the culture to do that for you, um, is is really you, you can't proceed to the next steps without those 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 two first things. I, I'm curious because I, I sometimes feel this way. Um, you know, it's funny, like I'm 34, you know, definitely not as hot as I was when I was 24. Right. Like that. that you're very hot, Inez. Inez, you're very hot. I, I expected to, um, you know, I expected to, to feel in some way jealous of 25 year olds. Right. I think that's kind of natural. Right. Like, you, oh, you know, as a woman, you, you're, you're vain, you're whatever. Um, and instead, I feel like I'm looking at people who are let's say in their mid-20s and I actually I'm I'm so grateful that I'm not 25 right now you know and I think that's so unnatural like I think the natural thing is to like being 25 is great like objectively great right in a lot of ways um but I'm wondering how you feel about when you look at 25 year olds today do you feel like jealousy to that kind of natural jealousy like oh that was a good time in life i'd like to return to it because i look around and i'm like oh my god i got the last cha- chopper out of saigon like there's, <laughs> there's yes i believe like that, yeah. I, I, i'm almost sad about the fact that i cannot feel jealousy about this do you know what i'm saying like it's right i i i think because you're still very young you're not jealous of 25 year olds yet but just wait <laughs> Just wait till you have a few milestone birthdays. And then you'll be looking at the 25-year-olds and be like, those damn bitches. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's the natural impulse, right? But like, yeah. it, it just seems, it seems like really oh, yeah, their lifestyle. Like, yeah, their lifestyle is bad. Than when I, even when I was 25, so that's almost 10 years ago, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. it seems much lonelier even than... Um, you know that song, no one likes you when you're 23, right? Like, it seems like no one likes anyone at all in their 20s. And they're all like, anxious and posting and like, in various 
but they don't they don't talk to each other they don't flirt with each other they don't have like any actual personal interaction that doesn't first come out of a very rigorous sort of set of of check boxes right like we've siloed ourselves on the internet so extremely that people don't interact in a fun way anymore and i so I, I keep repeating this this anecdote, but I have a bartender friend who's been bartending for 15 years, and she said, guys do not approach women anymore in bars. That, like, doesn't happen. And I'm wondering what it looks like to be in your 20s when that doesn't happen. That's so sad. That's the wages of me, too, right? You can't flirt. Flirting is rape. And our population is plummeting because of that. Like... <laughs> We are, we've got to get the 25 year old men and the 25 year old women, or well, I guess they could be 28 year old men. Okay. A little older. We've got to get them in a room together and pour them some drinks and have them flirt because <laughs> honestly, we are, we need a baby boom. And the fact that, and, and the thing is that girls have been taught, you know, the male gaze is bad. Like I dress for myself and yet, no, that is to- total, a total lie. You Women want and need, you know, heterosexual women want and need young male affirmation. They need that. And they're not getting it in real life because men are, I don't know if they're, you know, porn addicts or they've just been kind of terrified. They don't want to get arrested. They don't get cuffed at the bar if they like hit on you. Right. So they're not making the move. Um, And uh, the, the women are instead swiping on, on their apps and which is like, so we've discussed like what is miss what, what gets missed, um, on a digital profile that you're not going to get in real life with someone interacting with someone. And it's so, it's so depressing. Um, I, I don't know how to, I, I think that culture is slowly coming back. I mean, obviously with the pandemic, we had like three years off of that. Um, and I'm not saying like, you know, Coachella, uh, festival culture is like the way to go, like to save the culture. I don't think so, but we've got to find a way to get like young, fertile, attractive uh, men and women in like a flirty zone with each other. That's, you know, wholesome, <laughs> not like depraved. And is it possible? Like, I, I don't know. I hope so because we need, we need it to happen. We need it to happen badly. But I will say one of the things about 25 year olds, if I may, is that I've been I was just discussing with someone the outrageous um, level of facial enhancements that now 25 year old women are getting, which used to be reserved for like, you know, the old ladies like me (laughs) in our 40s. Um, Suddenly, these beautiful young women are are walking around with like, you know, just giant lips and they're they're presenting themselves in a way that ages them and really gives off this sort of very uncanny Valley, you know, perfect vibe, especially here in LA, obviously. Um, and I think that is a huge turnoff to like normal people. Do you see any, a lot, you must see a lot of that in New York. Well, I've been told that the the thing in New York is to make sure that your uncanny valley isn't uncanny, right? Like there, I, I've even seen um, there's something called like the the New York version of whatever plastic surgeries are being done in LA is toned down by about eighty percent. Uh, so right. it's not that women. I sh- I'm sure women are doing it here, but it's not like you don't walk around very often seeing like 
people who look like their faces have been rearranged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they got beat up on the subway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. Sadly. Um, no, but I, I do think this all fits together, right? Because uh, something stuck with me. Uh, a friend of mine said about her, uh, the, the kids in her daughter's class that a lot of the girls were wearing masks even after the school had dropped it. And it, at first she thought it was because they were afraid of COVID. Um, but it turned out it was because they, after two years of basically being entirely digital and being able to manipulate their appearance um, in all interactions with people and be quote unquote, they're like best digital hottest self that they were afraid to show their faces, um, their real faces to the boys in their class. Cause they, they, they figured that all the boys think that they look like how they looked on like Snapchat or on Instagram. Oh, right. With the filters, the lips yep. filters. Wow. That is so, <laughs> I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, that's so sad, but uh, you know, female vanity is not helped um, by all those filters, which (laughs) if that's all you're looking at every day and that's what you want to present to the world. Yeah. I mean, reality is going to be a bummer, be a big bummer for you. Don't you worry about that in general? I mean, we're talking about in the context of 25 year olds flirting with each other, but like, or or even 16 year olds, but uh, don't you worry that in general, like real life will not have enough appeal as currently constituted to fend off a totally digital life? I mean, uh, like, <clears throat> it, it, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that like, um, you know, that, <laughs> that real life, I, I think it's kind of an obvious take that real life is worth living. Um, but then I, I think about people who, whose real lives really are this like quasi digital space where they don't interact a lot with other people face to face, especially after the last two years, you got more and more people who, you know, are what we would have called in the past life agoraphobic um, and, and completely uh, awkward and unable to interact in, in real time with other human beings. I mean, don't you worry that those people will just retreat into the metaverse? I mean, it, it's, it'll just be a more, elaborate version of those girls who don't want to show their real faces because real life doesn't seem, you know, real life doesn't seem as appealing as the way they can present themselves with filters. I mean, imagine just being able to to interact in a more like 3d virtual way um, where you get to choose all those things. I mean, how do we sell the imperfection of life? Cause that's what I feel like the position we're in now. We have to sell them on, on the imperfection of and suffering and tragedy of real life. Right. No, that's such, that's such a <laughs> that's such a great point. I mean, fortunately, I have sabotaged the metaverse, and so that will be going away very soon. You're welcome, America. <laughs> I have crashed that. I mean, that looked like, you know, just a total, you know, no one wants to be a part of that. And I think that there is a little bit of glimmer of hope, uh, at least I hear from my kids. They just think all of that is so cringe, having like an avatar, like running around, like talking to other avatars, they think it's ridiculous. They don't want any part of it. My younger kids do play a kind of avatar game called Roblox, which is like these little blocky avatars talking to each other about, you know, I don't even know what, making little jokes to each other. But those are just like video game things. I don't think, I really don't think that, uh, 
that that the full virtual, you know, VR headset, like the tactile haptic bodysuit, you know, world will will come about in the way that some people like have these dire predictions that it that we'll just never we'll just be in our pods and we'll just be, you know, fed nutrients through tubes while we, you know, type or whatever. Um, because I think that there is, a, seems like a movement a little bit away from that, like the whole touch grass, you know, and all this stuff that my, my teenagers know about all that stuff. I mean, they're very online too. They chat, whatever discord, you know, it's pretty wholesome. I do check it. Don't worry. Um, but they seem to be, you know, their favorite thing is to hang out with their friends, which is, what all teenagers throughout history, you know, American teenagers want most of all to be hanging out with their, with their friends. Um, And so that gives me some hope that they, they will never miss a party. They will want to go and hang out at each other's houses. They come over to my house. So I don't think the whole virtual, you know, world is going to affect them as much if you can get them kind of social, you know, demented and sad, but social to quote the breakfast club. Um, if you can get them socializing early um, and there's fun that you cannot replicate, you know, as fun as it is to talk to you here, it, I'm sure we'd ha- be having an even better time if we were in person, you know, over, over drinks or whatever. Um, and uh, the people who are stuck, who kind of have still stuck in that pandemic mindset. I just read something like someone had never left the house since early 2020, like just had their first dinner out somewhere, like some, some like, I don't know, CAA agent or something. And I was like, (laughs) that's just like, what is that? Uh, There are people who will never come back from the isolation, the digital isolation of that. And, you know, what can you do? You can break their door down you know, force them out. But if that's just where they're going to go, I mean, it, it, it it's a loss, I guess. But um, I, I don't know what you can do. You can just, you know, I guess it, the only, our only hope is like a, an EMP, you know, to just wipe it all out. I, you know, that would, that would pro- probably suck, but it would be one solution. And, uh, and now we know how PT crashed meta. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke i have nothing to do with that i don't know anything about technology so i can never do it we are joking um <laughs> uh, before we wrap up here i mean what we've been talking about sort of the response of the kids largely largely defined as people all the way through our 20s as we want to do the older we get but the, the broader the kids quote unquote seems to get actually my husband always tells us a funny story about his great grandma who always said, you know, where are the kids to refer to her 80 year old, kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yep. it can always, you can always be a kid to somebody. Um, but we've generally been talking about sort of the younger generations. What has been the response to your writing from sort of your demographic, which it seems like, as as we kind of said, there's, there seems to be this mass Gen X rebellion that's bubbling, you know, bubbling up in, in a lot of the school board meetings, at least on the Republican side. There are lots of Gen X kind of rising stars in the Republican Party. In fact, most of the rising stars of the Republican Party, um, whereas Democrats need to be skipping straight to like AOC and millennials, which makes perfect sense. Um, that's so <laughs> what a great observation. Yeah, so true. Yeah. I mean, what what is what is the response been from your your own kind? 
it's funny. I mean, I do get a lot of comments from people, um, you know, a lot of MAGA moms. Um, <laughs> the boomers love me. <laughs> um, my mother always sends my articles to her, to her friends, you know, who, who don't know that I'm, you know, her daughter, um, because I'm obviously anonymous and they're, you know, super into it. And I just, I do get a lot of like nice DMs from, from parents who are like, you know, seem to be, you know, ha- have had similar experiences, um, similar observations, um, women and men. Um, and, uh, you know, but I do, it's funny. I just heard from, um, I'm in a, I'm in a group chat with some like, you know, very base ladies and one of them told me that a friend of hers read an article, an essay I wrote for the American Mind, where I um, have a regular column, and said that because of my essay, which I think I think it was the one called "Kin in the Game," which was about like you know have babies, um, she decided to marry her boyfriend, quit her job, and and have babies, and had and now has a baby, like because of this thing I wrote, which is like so wild, and. You know, uh, all those little peaches out there getting born <laughs> because of me. Um, so I think that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't like, I'm like a, you know, I'm a nano celebrity. I mean, I have a bit, relatively small following. Um, but the based on that, this, the messages I've gotten from people, like, I, I think there is an audience for a, like, a, 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 a parent, a mom, um, a conservative, a Catholic, who is able to put these things in a way that is, I don't know, readable and maybe sometimes fun. Um, you know, the the medicine goes down easier with sugar. And so it's been great experience for me to like, you know, quit writing for the Borg, which I did for many years, and finally, you know, let my freak flag fly, as they say. That is the most Gen X saying. <laughs> um, but how, have you found that, like, um, I guess, do you think that this is going to be more than, do you think this is going to catch on as more? Because we're talking about the bimodal, right, response of Gen Z. I mean, it seems like we have a pretty narrow window for your generation to put things right. And that's kind of how I think about these things now. I think of, I mean, I feel like millennials are the first truly indoctrinated and really dedicated generation to the the new sort of uh, the new regime. Um, if we wait until millennials are taking over the C-suites and running in larger and larger numbers for office and, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, you know, <laughs> even if we do a lot of the things to stop the pipeline on the other end and create, uh, what does it they used to call rush babies? You can call them peachy babies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the other end, I mean, uh, is this going to turn into like a, a generational warfare between millennials and, and Gen X? Because if it's so, we're, unfortunately, we're, we're a lot bigger than you. We, our generation's huge. Correct. It is going to be a war. We're already in it. I don't mean a, you know, a cold war. It's not, you know, I don't think we'll be killing each other. Um, but yeah, there's no escaping that conflict. There's there we're, we're, we're absolutely in like an existential, uh, even like a civilizational uh, crisis moment. Absolutely. Culturally. 
Um, and if we don't pull our heads out of our asses, it's over. I mean, and you know, it almost is basically like, I, you know, that's the, your black pill of the day. <laughs> it is almost over. And, you know, part of why I wrote this book was like a last ditch effort. Like let's, we gotta, let's pull those irons out of those. Like let's, let's pull um, defeat from the jaws, you know, like as right now it's, this is our moment and we, we still can win. And I think we have, we have to win. Part of what, uh, you know, part of my whole strategy, obviously, to this is that we can outbreed the, um, you know, our enemies. Because the millennials, many of them, and, and Gen X, have self-selected, you know, for, for you know, genetic dead ends. Um, they, they are, you know aborting all their babies, they're on lifetime birth control. And so if they, you know, never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. So if I, if I can convince a few more people to maybe have an extra kid or two, you know, in a generation or two, where, where are our numbers? Now, I mean, maybe this is all just like total fantasy. And I don't mean for, I don't like to tell people, you must have a child. I, I really don't care. Like everyone can live their life. Um, but I think that we have to get a few more fertile people to decide to, to go for it and have maybe one extra kid or two. And then we have a chance. But yeah, until if we don't, yeah, you guys win. The millennials win. You know, we'll surrender. We'll have the <laughs> we'll be on the at the guillotine begging our begging forgiveness um, as we're like thrown out of, you know, polite society. Totally. <laughs> I hope I hope that day doesn't come. But. I don't know. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted, since this is, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, people are going out to vote. I'm going to vote after this. Um, and this probably by the time this releases at noon tomorrow, we still won't know the results uh, <laughs> of the election. Not for weeks. Not for weeks. <laughs> um, so what are, in, in that spirit, what are your predictions? I will close out with that. How, how do you think this is going to go? Um, I mean, Obviously, I don't want to be uh, coy about it. Obviously, people are predicting a big night for the Republican Party. But, um, you know, there's there's kind of a, a range of outcomes here. Do you think it's going to be like huge, huge? Or do you think it's going to be kind of, OK, we're, we're rebuking the party in power, but perhaps not the army of marching peachy Keenan moms uh, that that, uh, you know, <laughs> is, is hoped for by in certain Republican quarters? Don't worry, I'll have them marching by 2024. I promise. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think there is a, a huge, a huge red wave. Um, the sentiment is there. You know, yesterday above the 101 freeway in Hollywood, there was a group of like young Latino guys holding a you know Rick Caruso sign. And for LA, he's running for mayor of LA. He's the quote Republican. He says he's a Democrat, but he's actually a longtime Republican. Um, Katy Perry posted that she just voted for Rick Caruso. His opponent is the Obama communist, like an open communist, Obama lackey, Karen Bass. So there is even hope, even hope in LA. Um, people have had it, like had it with everything top to bottom. Now, however, I will say what I thought the morning of Trump's election 2016 I had bet money on Trump. I knew he would win. I, I I tried to tell people this is a sure thing. I just I just 
he was going to win. But I thought that afternoon I had this sudden panic where I realized, okay, if they, the powers that be, if they knew what I knew that he was going to win, they would be cheating more. Cause we've always known, look, there is cheating on the left. We've known this for years, dead people voting. This is just a common, you know, they, they cheated the margins. I don't really know anything about it. I'm not like a big stop the steal person. I was not, I was not there on January 6th, whatever, but there's always been some like stuff going on, like shady stuff. So I thought that day, okay, he'll win if they know, don't think he'll, he's going to win. And so he did win. They were not, I knew going to make the same mistake twice. Um, there were shenanigans on 2020. There were quote burst pipes. There was 3 a.m. ballot dumps. There was no transparency. I have no idea what actually happened. I don't know one way or the other. Um, I think there's a very good chance that things like that are going to be happening in certain precincts, Philadelphia, Maricopa. I don't know, you know, Georgia, there's already talk on the internet. It's like uh, noon here in California that there's machines down. I, I don't know. So I'm feeling really good about it. I certainly hope that, um, that uh, we could pull off uh, the Senate and the house for sure. But look, if we wake up tomorrow and John Fetterman has won and Blake Masters has lost, um, you know, that will be, uh, <laughs> you know, I say, hey, bring on the recession. We deserve it. <laughs> well, hopefully with Katy Perry's assets on our side, we, we cannot fail. <laughs> so, Peachy Keenan, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Uh, you can read her, her work over at The American Mind, and please do pre-order her book, Domestic Extremists. It's coming out in June, but those pre-orders really, really help authors. Um, if, you, if you're not aware of sort of the publishing side, publishers love to see high pre-orders for books. So go go order her book, Domestic Extremists, um, anywhere you you order such things, including the big evil Amazon. Um, so, uh, Peachy, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thank you so much, Inez. This was a lot of fun. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, we also have other productions, such as At the Bar, which is um, a podcast I do with my colleague, Jennifer Buceris. We're going to do actually do a, a, a Supreme Court uh, um, big case sort of download um, this week. So so check in for that at, at the bar. Uh, and, and also we have a second podcast mm -hmm. called She Thinks um, for IWF. And that is host Beverly Hallberg. And she does more like sort of day-to-day -day politics, like lots of interesting politicians and policy wonks and, and people who know what they're talking about. So please do check those out. Um, as always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, at IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.